The last few weeks, we've been working our way through the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And you'll remember that last week, Jesus was in the synagogue with the man with the unclean spirit. We pick it up there in the first chapter of Mark, verses 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you had a fever in the last 14 days? It's a question we're all getting used to, and a reminder that fevers are serious business. In the days of Jesus, they didn't have COVID-19 to worry about, but without modern medicine and antibiotics, well, a fever was just as life-threatening. So as soon as Jesus steps into the house, Simon takes him to see his mother-in-law in the back, lying in the bed. And in probably the shortest healing story in the Gospels, Jesus, quote, took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. The story then moves quickly on to other things. By sundown, Mark says, the whole city was gathered at the door, so we can forgive Jesus for having other things on his mind. But I found my own thoughts lingering there with Simon's mother-in-law, wondering what her name was, how long she'd been sick, how she and Simon got along living there in the same house. There's much we don't know about this brief encounter. What we do know is that the first thing Jesus does is take her hand. Maybe it's nothing, a throwaway detail that Mark's editors should have caught. But in our new world of social distancing and lockdowns and not getting to play with grandkids, we're all gaining a new appreciation for what it might have meant to have someone take her hand. And then that funny little phrase, he, quote, lifted her up. Again, maybe it doesn't mean anything, just something to help us imagine the scene. But maybe, I wondered, was Jesus doing more than just making her comfortable? Was he lifting her up from something that had for too long been holding her down? In Greek, the word used here is agiro, and it's the same word the Gospels often use to describe Jesus' resurrection. 
At the end of Mark's gospel, for example, the young man with the white robe that the women find at the tomb says this, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The word we translate there into English as risen is agiro. And maybe it's just a coincidence. It's a common enough word. But the Gospels are full of word plays and foreshadowing, and I can't help but wonder if Mark is hinting at something more here. Because whether it is the lifting up of Simon's mother-in-law or the lifting up of Jesus from the tomb, we are, as we say, a resurrection people. And lifting up is what we do. For most of my career as a pastor, I would have said that being Christian is primarily about helping to lift up other people. Whether it is out of poverty or from an illness or out of harm's way, I would have said that our job as followers of Jesus is to be generous with our time, our money, with all that we've been given to make the lives of other people better, especially those who are suffering or in need. Of course, I still believe these things are true. In a world where so many people seem content only caring about themselves, and in a society that reinforces values of selfishness and greed, it is a powerful, radical, countercultural, beautiful thing to care for other people. But somewhere along the way, I began to think Jesus might want even more from us. I began to think that besides just lifting up other people, Jesus wants us to lift up, well, things like difficult questions about inequities and disparities, questions about racism and sexism and homophobia, difficult questions about economics and politics and how we're treating this planet of ours. And maybe most importantly, to lift up difficult questions about our own role in perpetuating those things. Because you see, it's one thing to lift up Simon's mother-in-law, but another thing entirely to lift up questions like, why is it that in the same sentence that she's healed, the same sentence, she goes right back to serving the men? And we wonder why she was sick. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, for example, And yes, it's the same Greek word, agiro, used there, by the way. Lazarus doesn't immediately start serving everyone. In fact, he sits down to dinner, and his sister Martha serves him. Raising questions about things like patriarchy is not for the faint of heart. People get defensive. People have things to lose. And even good-hearted, well-intentioned people have a really hard time being honest with themselves about these things, myself included. We want to think of ourselves as benevolent, benign beings just here to help. But the halo of our self-perception can blind us to the ways that we benefit from or are responsible for or participate in the systems that hold people down in the first place. When I began to see how this 
was another kind of lifting up, another kind of resurrection that Jesus calls us to. Well, I will say I was not very happy about it. I didn't like the way justice questions called me out personally as someone who has benefited greatly from the way that this world works. I didn't like the way it made me feel guilty or even ashamed. And I certainly didn't like what these questions asked of me as a pastor. Because I can preach Christian charity all day, and people love it. But justice sermons make people mad. And I don't like to make people mad. And these same people that get mad at, at these sermons often make good points because these issues are complicated and none of us have all the answers. And sermons like that, they strain relationships and, and sometimes I think it would be much easier to just go back to only preaching Christian charity. But if we don't lift up difficult questions, then a hundred years from now, we're still going to be lifting up Simon's mother-in-law. Whether we're talking about sermons or new ministries in the church or conversations we have with friends and neighbors, this is the truly hard work. This is the heavy lifting we have to find the courage to do if we're ever going to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That shift in perspective has probably been the single biggest change through the years in my understanding of what it means to be Christian. And on the days that I am tempted to revert back to that first kind of, easier kind of Christianity, I'm helped by a more recent shift in perspective. Put simply, I've begun to see just how much I have lost in all of this too. I don't mean that my suffering is the same in quantity or kind as those who've experienced the kind of awful oppression and prejudice that we all know exists. But I do mean that I see more clearly now how we have all suffered from oppression and prejudice, whether it was directed at us or not. I see, for example, how much my life has been impoverished by the amazing black and brown women and men I have not had the chance to know because racism kept us from knowing each other. I see how impoverished our country has been because sexism has deprived us of so many strong, brilliant women in leadership. I see how our unwillingness to address environmental issues adds so much anxiety to my life as I watch our beloved state burn or flood every summer. I see how the wealth gap between me and so many others makes me think in clingy, worried, unhealthy ways about my money and my house and my things. I see how my own white supremacy makes me do little, almost unnoticeable things to protect my privilege and power. I see how I look at someone with less than me and I feel sorry for them and then I feel guilty at my good fortune and then angry at them, I guess, which is crazy. But I don't want to feel so guilty, so getting angry is easier and I see how exhausting it all is and how living in a world of so much suffering, even if it's not directly my suffering, 
still leaves my soul ripped at the seams. So now, when I think about Simon's mother-in-law, yes, I think, about, I think my faith calls me to lift her up. And yes, my faith calls me to lift up questions, as hard as they may be, about why she's sick in the first place. But my faith also calls me to see the truth that we are all Simon's mother-in-law because we're all in that bed because we all have a fever. And as resurrection people, our work will not be done until we see the resurrection of the whole of creation, including ourselves. Our work will not be done until we see ourselves as perpetrators and victims and until we seek forgiveness for what we have done and freedom from what has, been, what has uh, held us down and chained us down. It will not be done until we all walk out from the tombs that have kept us down so long, until we all are lifted up out of that bed and walk out of the house and into the sunlight and stretch our legs, feel the breeze on our face and smile because the fever is gone, because the fever is gone.